We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to get back into our study that we just kicked off a few weeks ago. And let me reread for us verses 1 through 7, this grand introduction to Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we acknowledge that it was only through his coming to this earth and living in our place and dying in our place and then rising from the dead that we have an advocate with you, seated at your right hand. Lord, what a, a great mystery this gospel, this good news of salvation is. And I pray that as we consider the gospel once again this morning, that you would open up our minds to understand maybe a little bit more of the richness, the the depth, the, the gloriousness of your gospel, so that we would be moved to greater affection for Christ and 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 stirred up to want to tell others of this good news of salvation, that they might enjoy the blessings, the benefits that we enjoy as those in Christ. We pray this in, in his name. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever traveled to the city of Rome? Anyone been to Rome? Wow, quite a number of you. Well, uh, those of you that have not been able to, and that includes myself, um, The city of Rome is one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. Uh, Millions of people travel there every year, primarily to see the legendary ruins of ancient Rome. Uh, There's, of course, the Colosseum, uh, Circus Maximus, the Baths of Caracalla, the Pantheon, uh, many different arches and basilicas, and, of course, the Forum, which is at the center of the city. And for centuries, the Forum served as the heart of ancient Rome. Uh, It was the site of triumphal triumphal processions, political elections, criminal trials, gladiatorial matches, and commercial affairs. In fact, it's been called um, the most celebrated meeting place in the world and even in all of history. And many of the the oldest and most iconic structures in Rome were were located on or near the Forum, and many of the ruins remain to this day. One of those is called the Temple of Apollo, and uh, that is a picture of the Temple of Apollo. Uh, This is just uh, 
one of a number of temples and monuments and statues and buildings that have stood the test of time and continue to astonish and influence contemporary architects and engineers and inspire tourists with a sense of the the glorious, the, the timeless nature of one of the most fascinating civilizations in the entire world. It's no wonder why Rome has, is, is often referred to as the eternal city. Ancient Romans believed that no matter what happened in the world, that, that Rome would go on forever. Well, we know it didn't in the sense that the Roman Empire eventually eroded and collapsed, and yet the foundations and the columns of these magnificent um, structures still stand as a reminder of us to, to us here in America who, who see our civilization following the same self-destructive path of ancient Rome. We know that world powers rise and they fall, world leaders come and go, and the only thing that will endure is the timeless truth of the Word of God, which reveals and explains the gospel of God. And we know there's only one eternal city, and that is the heavenly city of God, which will be inhabited someday forever by those who embrace the good news of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. No other book in the Bible provides a clearer presentation of this this glorious gospel than the book of Romans. And that's why many consider Romans to be the most important book in the Bible, And on top of that, even the most influential document ever penned, because it serves as the foundation of the Christian faith. One author in particular, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite expositors, um, commentators, said it this way, quote, Christianity has been the most powerful transforming force in human history. I think we would all agree with that. He goes on to say, and the book of Romans is the most basic, comprehensive statement of true Christianity. And so, again, emphasizing the foundational, influential nature of this letter. And yet, as foundational and influential as it is, um, we need to understand that it was originally written by the Apostle Paul, really to seek the support of the Roman churches in bringing the gospel into new territory, namely Spain. It was a a missionary support letter. And in order for them to to partner with Paul in the spread of the gospel, he knew that they needed to get to know him, but more importantly, they needed to get to know his gospel. And they needed to share his passion to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so... He was writing to stir up evangelistic zeal in the Roman churches. I think that was his primary goal. But he also wanted to promote peace and harmony because he knew that if there were divisions within the church, it would hinder their ability to reach those outside the church. And so what we can learn just from an overview of the book of Romans is that, that a thorough apprehension or understanding of and a true appreciation for the gospel is is the key to both partnership and peace, which are the two main themes of this book, partnering together to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and, and enjoying peace together, 
harmony together uh, within the body of Christ. One commentator put it this way about the strategic role the gospel plays in those two purposes, the, the purpose of evangelizing those outside the church and getting along with those inside the church. He said this, only a church deeply soaked in the gospel will live in harmony. Only a church thoroughly taught the gospel will reach out with zeal. The reason is that only the gospel humbles men and women to the level of the ground so that human pride ceases to make divisions and the church ceases to be a club but reaches out to fellow sinners in love. He says this, the logic of the gospel as Paul expounds it here in the book of Romans, will press us out into the world and at the same time build us up together in love. And so as we study through this this epic book together, we need to be regularly asking ourselves how what Paul wrote to the churches in Rome should impact our zeal to get through to those outside the church with the gospel and to get along with those inside the church. As I stated last time, Paul's introduction here, verses 1 through 7, is longer than any of his other letters. Typically, Paul would begin a letter by introducing himself, identifying his readers, and giving a brief greeting, which he does here in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. There he is introducing himself. And then notice verse 7. He identifies his readers to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And then here is his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So typically, Paul would have just simply said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The question then is, what happened in verses 2 through 6? That typically was not there in any of Paul's other letters. And what verses 2 through 6 is, is a digression from his introduction to clarify this unique calling as an apostle to the Gentiles and elaborate on the gospel that God had called him to preach. This is kind of a a sneak preview, if if you will. He couldn't wait to, he was so overjoyed about this message of of the gospel that he just couldn't wait to introduce his readers to what he was going to talk about. And so he kind of just burst into it here immediately. He had to pull himself back and just kind of gave the gist of the gospel here. And so here we get a kind of a a teaser, if you will, in verses 2 through 6 of what uh, is to come later throughout the rest of the book. And so how I'd like us to look at these verses this morning is that in Romans 1 through 7, what Paul was doing was he was highlighting eight pillars of the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember last time I said there were eight facets, but I was thinking more of this imagery of the Temple of Apollo and these, these, these foundations, these structures that have remained uh, in, in present-day Rome, of ancient Rome. And, and so what we have here are eight pillars of the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this book is all about the gospel, so it begs the question, what is the gospel? And so here we have eight foundational truths about the gospel. 
Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, the gospel was masterminded by God. The gospel was masterminded by God. Notice he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not my gospel. It's not your gospel. It's God's gospel. And I think the most important thing about the gospel that we need to understand is that it comes from God. It was his idea. He was the mastermind behind this grand strategy to save a world lost in sin from his wrath through faith in his son, Jesus. And so Paul wanted the Roman believers to to know that his message wasn't something that he had come up with on his own. Rather, it was revealed and entrusted him by God himself. The gospel is not some human invention. It's not something that was conjured up by some ancient church fathers. It was not devised by some man like Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith, like uh, so many of the false religions that we have in our day. Paul wanted them to know that this was, this was much more than the good news of some herald of just another Roman emperor. This was a message from God. He was a herald of God, the emperor of the universe. This was the greatest news ever proclaimed. Some of you may be familiar with a book that John Piper wrote years ago that was simply titled, God is the Gospel. And that's just a compelling title. God is the Gospel. What is the Gospel? Well, it's about God. Listen to what was written about this particular book to describe the contents of this book, God is the Gospel. It goes like this. This book is a plea that God himself as revealed most clearly and fully in Jesus' death and resurrection, be seen and enjoyed as the final and greatest gift of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus and his many precious blessings are not ultimately what makes the good news good, but means of seeing and savoring the Savior himself. Forgiveness is good because it opens the way to enjoying God himself. Justification is good because it it wins access to the presence and pleasure of God himself. Eternal life is good because it becomes the everlasting enjoyment of Jesus. All of God's good gifts are loving to the degree that they lead us to God himself. This is the love of God, doing everything necessary, most painfully in the death of his son, to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely, himself. In other words, God did all that he did in the gospel so that we could have him, that we could know him, that we could have a relationship with him. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, said this. He said, this is still the first and most basic conviction which underlines all authentic evangelism. In other words, how does this relate to you and I sharing the gospel with others uh, in our family, in our community? He says, what we have to share with others is neither a a miscellany of human speculations. In other words, this is not just something that that we're, we're just speculating about. Nor is this one more religion to add to the rest. 
In other words, we're just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're just like the, the Mormons. We're just like the whatever. No, th- this is no religion at all. It is rather God's own good news for a lost world. Without this conviction, evangelism is evacuated of its content, purpose, and drive. In other words, to understand that we have the glorious privilege of being a herald for the Almighty God, and that we are heralding a message directly from heaven. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul understood this. He, he got this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he's entrusted to us with this this, this ministry to go out and and, and help people become reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There's uh, kind of another way to, to, to look at the gospel or to explain the gospel, that God was reconciling himself to the world or the world to himself. Why? Not counting their sins against them, Christ paying for those sins, and he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation, the gospel. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How cool is that to consider that when you have an opportunity to tell, something, tell somebody about Jesus, it, it literally is God making an appeal through you. You are a mouthpiece for God. You're an ambassador for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Talk about the confidence that should give us when we share the gospel, the excitement, the joy, the honor, the privilege. It's not just a duty. It's a privilege to be an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes from understanding that the gospel is not just something some man made up. It's not just something you learned about at church. No, this is the gospel that was masterminded by God himself. And he wants to get the word out. And he wants to use you and me to do that. And so the gospel is masterminded by God, number one. Number two, the gospel is explained in the scriptures. The gospel is explained in the scriptures. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 2. He says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Now, Paul was often accused of proclaiming a a revolutionary new message that was different from or was disconnected from Judaism. And that's why the Jews, all of his fellow Jews wanted to kill him because he had gotten off in the weeds and he was leading people astray. and, And so he wanted the believers in Rome to know that the good news that he preached was not new news, but old news that was found in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. You know this, that the Old Testament contains many 
prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. In fact, some 332 prophecies are in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, most of which were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. And besides all the specific predictions about Christ and all the types and, and, and symbols uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, they foreshadowed the, the birth and life and death and resurrection and exaltation of the promised Messiah. I mean, think about just the design of the tabernacle, the, 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 the details of the sacrificial system, about the, 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 something having to die to be killed in the place of, of, of sinners to make atonement for sin. Even some of the stories in the Old Testament, like the serpent on the pole, remember that when the nation of Israel was grumbling and complaining and God punished them by sending snakes amongst the, the, the camp and they started getting bit and some people were dying and they called out to Moses, please intercede to, to God and tell him we're so sorry for complaining just to have him take the snakes away. And so God told Moses, hey, I'm not going to take the snakes away, but I want you to make a snake and put it on a bronze snake on a pole and stick it in the middle of the camp. And when somebody gets bit by a snake, they're to look at that snake and they'll be healed. Again, the idea was they needed to demonstrate faith in God's provision for that snake bite. And again, Jesus used that in John chapter 3. He said, even as the, the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross, that all those who believe in him will be saved. And so you see all these, these, these symbols and these, these, these types these stories that foreshadow the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself used the Old Testament scriptures to convince people that he was the promised Messiah. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In other words, the whole Old Testament testifies about me. That's what Jesus said. Look at Luke chapter 24. Just turn back to the left a little bit. Luke chapter 24. This is after Christ's resurrection, and he was walking with the two disciples, two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they were leaving the city discouraged that Christ uh, or that their Lord had been killed and buried. And uh, they're walking along, and Jesus, this is what Luke records in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Note this, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Later on when they left, when he left them, uh, and it dawned on them who he was. They said in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? He eventually ended up with all of the disciples in the upper room. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He said, and you are my witnesses 
And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The point is this, that the, the entire Old Testament points to and leads up to Christ. And if you wanted to break down the Old Testament, there's three basic sections. There's the history section, there's the 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 poetry section, and then there's a prophetic or the prophecy section. Guess what? Every single one of them Jesus used, he used the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The history, the poetry, and the prophecy of the Old Testament all point to and lead up to Christ. Peter, who was Christ's leading apostle, referenced the Old Testament extensively in his sermons. Uh, You can just look at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 10, uh, he, he was constantly quoting the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, interesting um, commentary on the Old Testament here, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. In other words, the prophets knew that they were prophesying about the Messiah. They didn't know exactly who that would be or when he would come, but they knew what they were saying, and they, they, they wished they knew. They wanted to, 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 to know for sure, but they couldn't because they lived before the time of Christ. Paul, uh, like Peter, reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures to show people that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. You see that in the book of Acts, Acts 13, Acts 17, Acts 26. He's constantly referencing the Old Testament to convince uh, primarily the Jews that Jesus was a fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies uh, regarding the Messiah. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul gave a, 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 a gospel in, in, um, in capsule form, he said this, for I delivered to you as of first importance that what, I re- that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so it's no wonder the book of Romans, where Paul starts off by saying that this gospel was promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Romans contains more references to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. And in fact, more than in all of Paul's other epistles combined. Some 57 times he quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Romans, showing that this gospel was, is not new news, it's actually old news. And so Paul's gospel was not, was not a new or novel idea. It was the gospel attested to by the Old Testament prophets, including Moses, along with the apostles 
of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, you're familiar with this, this verse, I'm sure. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Again, just acknowledging the the apostles and the prophets and the role that they played in explaining the gospel. And so uh, the gospel was masterminded by God and it was promised or explained, it's explained in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Thirdly, another foundational principle here of the gospel is the gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. The gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. Notice he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so the gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. The gospel is all is concerning his son. It's all about the person and the work of God's son, Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say this if you wanted to Tie this together. Look at verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 3, concerning his son. Look at verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. So the gospel of God, it's called the gospel of God, it's called the gospel of his son. Another reference there to the deity of Christ. And so what we see here in verses 3 and 4 are all either direct or indirect references to the birth, death, and resurrection of of Jesus. It says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And so we know that the, the second member of the Trinity left the glories of heaven and came to earth and took on human flesh and was born as a man to live and die in the place of sinful men. And so Jesus was fully God, he was fully man, and there's this this miraculous, mysterious combination of deity and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And so from a divine perspective, Jesus was the son of God, but from a human perspective, he was the seed of David. Notice he says, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. In other words, according to Christ's human lineage, human lineage, he was a direct descendant of David. His natural mother, Mary, his legal father, Joseph, both were descendants of David. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. In fact, let me just read for you Luke chapter 1. This is when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the virgin, and pronounced the birth of Christ. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This was a reference to what God said back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. This is the Davidic covenant. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a reference to the Messiah who is going to be a descendant of David. And so... The term son of David was universally recognized by the Jews as a title of the promised Messiah. And so he says concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Notice immediately following a, 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 a note about Christ's humanity, Paul strongly reaffirms his deity. He descended from David Verse 3, but was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection was God's way of demonstrating that he was indeed his Son. That only God has the power to come back to life. And so the resurrection is irrefutable evidence of Christ's deity. Just a few pages to the left in Acts 13... Verse 29, listen to what Paul said about Christ's resurrection. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So quote from Psalm 2. Verse 7, and so Jesus was the son of David, but he was also the son of God, which that title is used nearly 30 times in the gospel to identify Jesus as God, as equal to God, God in human form. And so he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. And if you're Translation has capital S, Spirit. That's a good thing because I think this was clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. Paul had the Holy Spirit in mind. He refers to him rather than referring him to, to, rather than calling him the Holy Spirit, he called him the Spirit of Holiness. Same thing. The point is that the Holy Spirit caused Jesus' conception in the womb of a virgin. He anointed Jesus for the ministry at his baptism when the Spirit came down in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit authenticated his ministry through all sorts of signs and wonders that he empowered him uh, to do. Uh, the Holy Spirit was the one who raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit indwelled his followers according to Christ's promise to send them a helper. Again, all of which bore witness to the fact 
that Jesus was truly God's son. What, did, what, did, what happened when the Holy Spirit came down from him at the baptism? What did, the, what did everyone around hear? They saw the Holy Spirit come down in, in the form of a dove, as it were, and they heard from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so, it was, again, it was all bearing witness. The Spirit's job was to point people to Christ as the legitimate Messiah, the Son of God. And just in case we weren't sure who Paul was talking about, he clarifies there at the end of verse 4, we're talking about here Jesus Christ our Lord. Hey, the one I'm describing here is none other than Jesus Christ. The one appointed by God to be the Savior from sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will take away the sin of the world. And the one anointed by God to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus was his name uh, Christ was his title, if you will, the Messiah, and Lord is his role, or his rule. Martin Luther, which by the way, today is Reformation Sunday, we've not mentioned that, we've talked about the Reformation all year, um, and then we don't say anything about it on the actual day, October Right? The Sunday, the last Sunday of October is Reformation Sunday, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Listen to what Luther said. He said, here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. Everything must be understood in relationship to Christ. What's the point of the Bible? Jesus. John Calvin said it this way, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. That's why Paul would later say in, John, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so the gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. Number four, the gospel is initiated by God's grace. The gospel is initiated by God's grace. Again, continue here uh, in verse five. He says, this Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received, what? Grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. I think Paul was referring to his conversion to Christ and also his commission as an apostle of Christ, that these were, in Paul's experience, one and the same. He got knocked off his horse, right? And what, what happened? He got saved and he was appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles. This was a simultaneous experience for Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, he talks about God's sovereignty in his getting saved 
and him being appointed as an apostle, Galatians 1.1, Paul an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Verse 15 in that same chapter, Galatians 1, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In other words, Paul understood that, hey, God had set me apart before I was ever born. To know him and to serve him. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul expresses his gratitude for his salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Let me tell you about the grace of God. It was able to save the worst sinner on the planet. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this statement. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, God's grace was greater than my sin. And, uh, and he was a serious sinner. <laughs> he was a persecutor of the church. And, and Paul would not ever have chosen to follow Christ on his own initiative. He was dead set against Christ. He was out to kill Christians. And that's why God graciously took the initiative in his salvation And the same is true of every one of us who have committed our lives to follow Christ. Notice Paul says in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul was talking about God's effectual call of elect sinners. He he uses the same word in verse 7, called as saints. This is the effectual call of salvation. In other words, how believers are sovereignly chosen by God's grace to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so everyone in the world receives what's referred to as the general call, the general invitation to believe in Jesus Christ. But no one believes on their own initiative. And that's why God has to take the initiative in our salvation. In fact, we're going to look at this, that there is no one good, not even one. We've all turned aside. Together we've become corrupt. God looks down from heaven to see if any if there are any who seek him and they don't in and of themselves. 
And so again, that's why God has to take the initiative by his grace and our salvation. Now, let's consider this from our vantage point. From our vantage point, we came to Christ through an act of our will. From our vantage point, we chose to become a Christian. We made a decision to follow Christ. That's from our vantage point. But from God's vantage point, we would not and could not have chosen to follow Christ unless he already had chosen us by the gracious act of his sovereign will. And of course, this is the the mysterious doctrine of election, which is all throughout the scriptures, particularly in Paul's writings. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Just as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, in other words, not our will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we would lay awake at night and not be thinking, well, I don't get that. It doesn't make sense to me why God wouldn't just choose everybody and that kind of makes me mad and what about my kids? And no, so you lay awake at night, why would he choose me? This is amazing grace. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And when we talk about grace, what we're, what we're talking about here is, is God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor to helpless and hopeless sinners. That's God's grace. His undeserved, unearned kindness and favor that he shows towards helpless and hopeless sinners. And so here we have really the first reference when Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, This is the very first reference to the most crucial aspect of the gospel, that that salvation is a free gift based on God's sovereign grace rather than something we can earn by our own good works. Paul's going to expand on this later in Romans 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Romans 6, 23, you have... This memorized probably, for the wages of sin is death, but the, what? Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we don't have time to get into it this morning, but you could look at Romans chapter 9, where he gives one of the greatest defenses of the doctrine of election anywhere in Scripture. And it's interesting, the wording he uses, and not only this, this is verse 10 of chapter 9, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by the man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, again, our human nature bristles even at that, and again, we don't have time, but there's a logic to what Paul says, and he begins to uh, anticipate the questions that will come when you start talking about the sovereign call, the sovereign choice of God for those who will be saved. We'll get there, but we need to understand initially that the gospel is initiated by 
God's grace. Number five, the gospel is expected to result in obedience. The gospel is expected to result in obedience. This is a a, a fascinating phrase here in verse five. He says, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. He used this same phrase um, in the last chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 26, but now is manifested, talking about the secret of the gospel, manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. What are we to make of this phrase, obedience of faith? It seems to contradict each other. Faith and obedience, what's the connection? Well, initially we could just say that Paul assumed that when someone received the gospel, the pattern of their life would go from disobedience to obedience. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you went from being a slave, when you get saved, you go from being a slave to sin, now you're a slave to Jesus, a slave to righteousness. In chapter 15, verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. He doesn't just say uh, what, what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the salvation of the Gentiles or the faith of the Gentiles. No, he says, he just goes to the end game, to the obedience of the Gentiles. There are Gentiles now obeying Christ, living a life of obedience to Christ. Chapter 16, verse 19, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. In other words, let's just take you for an example. Those of you that are part of the churches in Rome, your obedience, the report of of, of how obedient you've become to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the scriptures, man, that's that's the talk of the town. Your life has been radically transformed I think it's interesting to note here that Paul emphasized the necessity of obedience. Here in this letter, where he adamantly insisted more than anywhere else that justification is by grace through faith alone. In other words, in Paul's mind, faith and obedience don't contradict each other. In fact, they complement one another. Again, in the spirit of the Reformation, this is Reformation Sunday, the Reformers, I think, got it right when they said this, and you've heard me say this before, Uh, they said this, quote, a person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. A person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. In other words, it it will result in a life of good works. We're not saved by works, we're saved for works. Ephesians chapters 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Very clear, the distinction where works come into play when it comes to you being a Christian. It's not, they don't, they don't, they don't make you a Christian, but they prove that you're a Christian. They show that you're a Christian. And so this 
this little phrase here, the obedience of faith, I think serves as one of the clearest evidences in the Bible that being a Christian is not just believing some facts about Jesus. It's way more than that. And it's not, not just having some emotional experience with Jesus. Oh, yeah, I remember back when, and I was, you know, it was at this thing, and I, I remember the thing, and I cried, and I, I came, and I threw the stick in the fire, and had this emotional experience. But guess what? Your life never changed. You're still the same person today as you were back then. It was just, just a big emotional experience. But, but your life never changed. You're not living a life of obedience to Christ now as a result of that experience. See, true saving faith involves more than accepting Jesus as our Savior. We must surrender our lives to Christ as our Lord and commit to follow and obey him for the rest of our lives. That's the gospel according to Jesus. And if you're familiar with any of the books that uh, my mentor, John MacArthur, wrote, that's probably the book that put him on the map that he got the most criticism over was this book he wrote called The Gospel According to Jesus. And, and, and he really, um, I think, was used by God to confront so much of this easy believism that goes on in the world, particularly here in the Bible Belt in the South where everyone goes to church, everyone believes in Jesus, right? But if you looked at their life, there was to be no evidence to prove that they're truly saved. In his commentary on the book of Romans, this is what MacArthur said. He said, a person who claims faith in Jesus Christ, but whose pattern of life is utter disobedience to God's word, has never been redeemed and is living a lie. Faith that does not manifest itself in obedient living is spurious and worthless. He says, it is not that faith plus obedience equals salvation. That's what he got whacked for. Oh, he's adding works to salvation. He, he's, he's saying that, that, that uh, you, you have to do these things in order to be saved. What happened to faith alone, in Christ alone? He says, no, it's not faith plus obedience equals salvation, but that obedient faith equals salvation. True faith is verified in obedience. That's the point. And by the way, this is completely consistent with the fact that the gospel call in the New Testament is not just to believe, but to repent and believe. Listen to Jesus himself, Matthew 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's not enough just to believe the facts about the gospel. You need to repent and believe the gospel. In other words, there needs to be a change of life. John 3.36, again, Jesus saying this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, you remember this verse? Obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus used the word believe and obey interchangeably. In other words, what does it mean to believe? It means that you believe to the point that you obey. If you truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he says, this is what the Bible says he did, then you believe it to the point you obey it. Obedient faith. The Apostle Paul 
Acts chapter 20, verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's the gospel. It's not just believe, 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 believe. It's repent and believe. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 Paul said that when Christ returns, he'll deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not believe the gospel? No, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And one more, this is Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is how he introduced himself and addressed his readers Believers scattered all over Asia being persecuted for their faith. He said, those of you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. You've been chosen to be saved. He could have said that, but he was being very specific. You you have been chosen by God to obey Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So again, the gospel demands more than an intellectual acceptance of Jesus or some sentimental response to Jesus. It demands a wholehearted, unreserved commitment to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what did Jesus tell his disciples when he commissioned them to go out and and bring the message of salvation, the good news of salvation to the world? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This is a great test for all of us. I don't think that the gospel requires perfect obedience. We're not talking about if you disobeyed this week, if you sinned this week, that, oh, that means you're not saved. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's talking about the consistent pattern of your life, that, that, that while you still sin, you hate it. And while you still disobey at times, you truly, honestly, from the heart, want to obey Christ. And you find yourself in that tension of Romans chapter 7 where Paul said, I, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we didn't get as far as I would hope, was hoping to, but I think we should stop there and let that just maybe sink in a bit And I would just encourage you today to examine your life the way the scripture says, to see if there's enough evidence in your life right now that lines up with what the scripture says is a true Christian. The climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. This is right after Jesus got done saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only 
him who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And many will see, say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? We're doing all this stuff, all these religious activities. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, you might be coming to church and you might be going through all these rituals and, and jump through all these spiritual hoops, and, but, but you are practicing lawlessness. In other words, you're living a life of disobedience to God and his word. And he goes on to tell the, the ultimate illustration. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. In other words, if you hear these words of mine and you do them, you obey them, then you're like a guy who's built his house on the, on the rock and the floods will come and your house ain't going anywhere. Everyone, on the other hand, who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, doesn't do them, doesn't live a life of obedience, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus wasn't just talking about houses built on the bayou. He was talking about eternal souls that will either weather the wrath of God because they've, they were true believers or those who, who will be swept away by the wrath of God. I'm talking about eternal heaven or eternal hell here based on what you do with the word of God. Again, beloved, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Christ has done. But how we know that we've been truly saved is that we strive by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells us to do what the Bible says and to live holy and pure lives that honor him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this time that we've been able to really examine the gospel, and, and in so doing, examine our own lives. And so I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would accomplish your purposes in our lives, Lord, that if there was anything unclear that came out of my mouth today, that your spirit would clarify it as these good Bereans go back to your word and, and really examine it for themselves. And Lord, that uh, there would be no one here who, who thinks they're saved when they're really not. Um, but that, Lord, we would not just be merely hearers of your word, um, believing a lot of things in our head, um, but Lord, that we would truly believe them to the point where we would live them out. It would change our lives. And, and that would demonstrate and give us the assurance, Lord, that we have been truly saved and transformed and, and chosen by you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.